are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George with us from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on the New Testament letters. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us today covering Romans chapter 12 through chapter 16, which include the following three topics. Life in Christ is true spiritual worship. Second, the strong must bear with the weak. And third, the Spirit is drawing all nations to Christ. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org, along with lessons and study guides for other New Testament books. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. And now, here is Dr. George speaking about Life in Christ is True Spiritual Worship. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Church tells us that chapters 12 to 15 of St. Paul's letter to the Romans is one of those special places in Scripture where we have a very condensed moral catechesis. And in fact, this is one of the passages that the Church recommends that we use in doing a thorough examination of conscience. Now, it would be one that we might want to separate over a period of, of several days so that we could do a very slow and careful reading of what it means to fulfill the law of charity. That's really what St. Paul is talking about in these chapters. Now, other good examples in Scripture would be chapters 12 and 13 of his first letter to the Corinthians, and in his letter to the Colossians, chapters 3 and 4, his letter to the Ephesians, chapters 4 to 6. We find in a number of places this fleshing out of Christ's own teaching. Really, all of these passages are rooted in the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. Now, chapters 5 to 7 of the Gospel of St. Matthew is an eminent catechesis on the fulfillment of the law of love. But we have to remember that the Lord, in his public ministry, taught the apostles. He repeated and fleshed out all of those teachings, particularly his Sermon on the Mount. Now, St. Paul wasn't present for this, but Paul himself says, following his conversion, that the Lord himself taught him and gave him understanding of the mystery of Christ. So, as the Church explains to us, these apostolic teachings are in fact the Lord's own word, the Lord's own instruction for us. Now, at the beginning of chapter 12, St. Paul says something very profound, very important to the whole of what we will read in these chapters. 
It has to do with spiritual worship, with the priestly aspect of our lives as members of Christ's body. What he says is, I urge you, brothers, remembering the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice dedicated and acceptable to God. Now, in a sense, this is foundational and also sort of the goal of everything that he talks about specifically in chapters 12 through 15. Because if we are going to live our lives as a priestly people, the efficacy, the power of those lives cannot be reduced to simply going to Mass on Sunday. In other words, spiritual worship is not simply and only about the Eucharist, although the Eucharist is the sum and summary of our faith. The Eucharist is really the source, and we could say the goal of our faith, because the Eucharist is Christ, union with God, participation in divine life. But everything that happens between one Eucharist and another, whether it's from one Sunday to another or from one day to the next day, totally affects the efficacy, the impact of our lives, our vocation to be Christ in the world, to be, in a sense, the presence of the Holy Spirit, so that everything in our lives, in the ordinary daily matters of life must become a form of spiritual worship. We worship God in how we work, in how we raise our families, in how we go about the world, in how we speak. We worship Him in everything, not just in the so-called greater matters, but in all the smaller matters as well. This is something St. Paul alludes to at the end of this exhortation, chapters 12 to 15, when he talks about his priestly duty to proclaim the gospel. Now Christ, the high priest, has made of his church, as scripture tells us, a kingdom of priests for his God and Father. This means that the whole community of believers as such is priestly. We are priestly. This has great significance for our lives. The faithful exercise their baptismal priesthood, each according to his or her own vocation, by participating in Christ's mission as priest, prophet, and king. These are all tied up into this matter of liturgy, the matter of spiritual worship. So the Church tells us that in the New Testament, that word liturgy, when we run across the word liturgy or spiritual worship, liturgy is referring not only to the celebration of divine worship, but also to the proclamation of the gospel and to active charity. In other words, service of God and service of neighbor. So, the Church shares in Christ's priesthood, that is, true worship, which is prophetic, in other words, we're proclaiming the gospel in everything we do, and also kingly in the service of charity, 
priest, prophet, and king. This is profound. It has profound implications. The word liturgy means literally public work. There is one liturgos, and he is Christ. The word liturgos literally means public worker. Think about this. Christ presides over everything that happens in the world. God is the public worker par excellence. And we share in this. But in the liturgy, because the liturgy is that source and goal of everything else that happens, we must understand this to appreciate everything St. Paul says in these chapters. It all matters greatly. In that action of liturgy, the Church says, in every liturgical celebration, because it is an action of Christ the High Priest and His body, the Church, we the members, it is a sacred action surpassing all others. There is no other action of the Church that can equal its efficacy by the same title or to the same degree. It's very profound. So, we begin with Paul telling us that our lives must be transformed. We must become other Christs in the world. We draw on this through our union with God in the Eucharist so that our whole life becomes a public work, a form of liturgy, a form of spiritual worship. Now, he begins in chapter 12 by emphasizing the virtue of humility. Everything ultimately is about the fulfillment of the law of love. But, as all the saints will tell us, humility is the foundation of all the other virtues. St. Augustine says that in the soul in which the virtue of humility does not exist, there cannot be any other virtue in that person except in mere appearance. Without humility, all the other virtues are present simply in mere appearance. They may look like, but they're not the authentic form of those virtues. Think about it. How can a person be kind and patient without the virtue of humility, especially kind and patient to one's enemies? How can a person think that he or she possesses true knowledge, true understanding, if there is no humility in that person? It's not possible to have the wisdom of God without humility. It's not possible to fear the Lord without humility. How can one hope to be prudent or temperate without the virtue of humility. It's not possible. Fortitude. Fortitude cannot be true fortitude according to the Holy Spirit without humility. There are strong people, persevering people in life, but if they lack humility, their strength, their perseverance is about self-reliance. It's about independence. It's about self-righteousness. So you see, without humility, the saints tell us, 
it's the foundation of all the virtues, that without humility, any other virtue is present only in mere appearance. It is not authentic. It is not the reality. That is why in chapter 12, St. Paul emphasizes that we must always look upon everyone else as another self. In this way, we treat others with compassion, with respect, in the same way that we ourselves would want to be treated, because we see all people, including our enemies, as another person, another one just like ourselves. We place ourselves in their situation, and we treat them the way that we ourselves would want to be treated. Now, no one in the body of Christ, as St. Paul tells us, has all the gifts. God has dealt out to each the measure of gifts which he desires in order to fulfill his purpose in that person and his plan in the whole world. God gives no one the whole package. Only Jesus Christ has everything, all gifts. He is everything in himself. We all have gifts, and so St. Paul says, for example, if you have been given the gift of prophecy, you should prophesy as much as your faith tells you. If it is the gift of practical service, then devote yourselves to serving. If it is to teaching, to teaching. If it is to encouraging, to encouraging. We use those gifts to build up the body of Christ, but at the same time, we have needs, exigencies, things that we do not possess so that we must learn to depend upon others. Now, he tells us that, that we must always, we must never look upon ourselves as better than we actually are. He says, never congratulate yourself on your own wisdom. Meet humble people on their own terms. Regard others as more important than yourself. What's interesting about the virtue of humility is that it is a paradoxical virtue. It is the one virtue that we cannot, we cannot seek or attempt to work on or obtain through our own efforts. It is elusive in that regard. Think about it. To go after humility so that we can make it our own virtue itself undermines the very virtue of humility, especially if we thought that by what we did, we actually acquired it. We couldn't possibly have acquired it. Humility is a beautiful virtue, a mysterious virtue, a necessary virtue. God, in becoming man, comes in meekness and humility. It is essential for us. We must be like Christ. Now, we can pray for the virtue of humility, and God will give it to us. He actually has been giving it to us all our life long, but we don't always recognize it or appreciate it. We become humble through recognizing our own limitations. God lets us feel our own poverty, experience that, our limitations, sickness, our own failings. He will even let us stumble in the presence of others who notice that. When we pray for humility, if we are sincere, God will grant us the graces needed to give us that virtue. 
but they're always difficult graces. But if we are receptive to it, we become humble not only before the Lord, but in our own estimation and even before others. It's key then to serving every person around us, including our enemies. If we do not have humility, we have really no hope of loving our enemies because we have to recognize in the person that we see as perhaps a person who is resistant to the Holy Spirit, a person who is confirmed in sin. It's difficult, especially if it's a person who has offended us or hurt us personally. It's difficult then to love that person by handing over to that person what we see that person needs in his own hour of need. But it is precisely in seeing everyone in the human race as another self that we can do this. We have to also recall that God loved us while we were still sinners and continues to love us with all of our imperfections and poverty. So that when we see our enemy, so to speak, in need of something essential in life, food, clothing, even dignity, God can quickly strip a person confirmed in wickedness, strip that person of their freedom, their confidence, and reduce that person to something very, very small. And when we see that, it should draw out of us compassion because there's certain essential needs for every human person, beginning with the need to be loved. This is why God says, that we must treat others always with love and kindness, particularly our enemies. In the first place, it prevents us from judging, it protects our own heart, and it confirms and purifies the virtue of love within us. Because it's easy to love those who love us, but to love those who do not love us, that actually purifies and increases our own faith, hope, and charity. Now, God does this by way of drawing those who are not on the road to salvation toward himself. That's why St. Paul emphasizes the fact that it is love which masters evil. Love conquers sin. So that when we treat our enemy with mercy, with kindness, St. Paul, quoting scripture, says, that we are heaping red-hot coals on that person's head. Now, what does Scripture mean by that? In the first place, because love and mercy, love and mercy break down the walls people build up in their heart. Love and mercy, compassion, kindness, gentleness, non-judgmentalism, those things tear down the walls of hostility, animosity, rebellion against the Holy Spirit. And oftentimes people, they can't help but be touched by it, and they feel the sting of sin in their own lives. They feel the sting that leads to remorse and to repentance and conversion. So that's the red-hot coals. But if a person accepts the kindness, accepts the love, but just continues to return to his way of wickedness, refuses to repent, 
and goes that road, accepting whatever love and kindness God's people will give him, but does not change. In the end, those red hot coals become burning judgment that comes down upon the head of that person so that no one will be able at the end of life to say, to justify their refusal to repent and be converted. God counts on his people, his priestly people, to be that love that conquers in the world. That is why our lives become powerful in transforming the world, even in the small things. We don't always see or know what God is doing through those things, but they're very, very powerful things in transforming the world and in being light to the world so that people can see, feel, experience the goodness of God and desire that for themselves in their own hearts. Thanks for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you are just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this next segment, Dr. George will be covering the following topic, The Strong Must Bear with the Weak. And now, back to Dr. George. Chapter 14 is a very interesting chapter, and it can be a bit of a difficult read if we do not understand that St. Paul is speaking primarily about non-essential matters, about freedom or liberty in the Holy Spirit, to live life in Christ, but it is a life that, although we, we are free to do whatever is lawful and to choose the good, that we live among people who are still sometimes scrupulous, vulnerable in their consciences, weak. And we have to be aware that charity is always the governing rule. Charity is, as the Church tells us, the form of all the other virtues. Charity is the form, regardless of what virtue we are to think about, its most eminent, its purest, its highest form is always defined by charity. Charity articulates and orders all things among themselves. It tells us what to do in each situation. Now, there are many situations in the world where there are different possibilities, where we can choose to do this or to do that. To understand chapter 14, we should begin then by reminding ourselves of two things. The first is the background to this, to what Paul says here. At the time of St. Paul, at the time of the writing of this letter, there were many converts to Christianity, of course from the Gentiles, but there were also many converts from the Jewish people. It was difficult for the Jews because they had come from a long, beautiful tradition of many rites and rituals and precepts and laws, which, as we have said in other lessons, were but signs or figures preparing for Christ. They were fulfilled in Christ, and in a sense we could say abrogated, in that the people were no longer required to fulfill them. Circumcision, of course, is one of these. Circumcision could be, people could circumcise themselves or their children if they wished to, but the key is that 
Circumcision was no longer the command. It wasn't the fulfillment of the law, not according to the new law of Christ. Now, the Jews had many, many regulations with regard to their diet, the foods that they ate, the vessels they used for cooking and eating. They had many rituals and prescriptions for their liturgical year, certain days that had requirements, fasting and certain devotions. And some days they would follow the calendar of the new moons, the Sabbaths, and so forth. Now, those were fulfilled. The people now had a new way, a new law in Christ. But there were Jews that had a difficult time letting go of these things. And since it was legal to do these things, they tended to straddle between the Old Testament and the New. They lived the New Testament in Christ, but they still clung to these old ways. Some of them were so scrupulous, as St. Paul says, they were vulnerable in their consciences. They could not omit doing these things without feeling they somehow had done wrong or defiled themselves. And St. Paul says that those who are strong, those who are free in Christ, so he knows that it is permissible for him to eat whatever he wants. But he says, it is never permissible to offend the weak. We cannot create scandal, the kind of scandal that confounds people, leads them astray, that wounds their consciences further. Now, we don't have exactly the situation in our own day and age, but in every age of the church, there are matters for which we need to apply the principles of this lesson in order to understand how we are to act. Now, I mentioned the background, but the second thing I want to mention is this. There is an old Christian motto or maxim that has even been quoted by saints of the church. Pope John XXIII quoted this Christian motto in one of his encyclicals, and it is this. In essentials, in other words, in essential matters, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Now what St. Paul is talking about here are not essential matters. They're non-essentials. In essential matters, we have an obligation to stand as Christians on a united front. We have an obligation to live the truth and to make it known. In essentials, essentials might be in our own day and age. Abortion, the issue of abortion, the fact that we must be pro-life. We can never justify taking an innocent life. Abortion, same-sex union, contraception. These are matters which are essential to the moral life. And we must obey divine revelation. We cannot simply say to others, well, whatever you feel is right in your life is okay. I'm not going to judge and I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to get involved in this. These are essential matters. There is a unity of truth and an obligation to be united on that same front. But there are many, many other matters which touch on the spiritual life, the life of our faith, that are non-essential matters. So we have choices. 
and in this we have freedom or liberty. But in all things, we have an obligation to charity. It is charity that fulfills the law, not our freedom in the Spirit. So this is why St. Paul says in chapter 14, one person may have faith enough to eat any kind of food. He is speaking, of course, for himself. He had the liberty. The apostles understood they could eat any kind of food. As he says in his letter to the Corinthians, he's talking about the same situation, the same problem. He says, everything is permissible, maybe so, but not everything does good. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up the body of Christ. He says, one may never offend his neighbor in charity. So he says, one person is strong enough to eat any kind of food. Another who is less strong will eat only vegetables. Those who feel free to eat freely are not to condemn those who are unwilling to eat freely. Nor must the person who does not eat freely pass judgment on the one who does. God is patient with us. There is a way in which probably all of us have at some point in our spiritual life been a little scrupulous about things. Our understanding has been imperfect. We have not yet arrived at that degree of spiritual maturity or freedom where we can live with the kind of freedom that St. Paul is talking about. God doesn't crush us. God is patient with us and he leads us. He leads through love. St. Paul therefore makes this point that whatever we do, he says, let each person be fully convinced in his own mind that whatever we do, we must be convinced that it is what God wants us to do, that it is right. That is why at the end of this chapter he says, every action which does not spring from faith is sin. Those are profound words. Those are very profound words. Now, we must be convinced in our mind and heart, in our conscience, that what we say, what we do, or what we refrain from saying or doing is what God wants us to do. It is that which is pleasing. If we have qualms of conscience, we sin. As St. Paul tells us, that anyone who does something with qualms of conscience is condemned in his own conscience. Every person has a grave obligation to listen to and obey his conscience. The voice of Christ speaks in the conscience of man, of every human person. It's true. Our consciences can be poorly formed. They can be misinformed. But in essential matters, the voice of God speaks in man's conscience. We all know, even unbaptized persons, we know certain essential things. For example, never to take innocent human life. Every person knows that, whether they know the commandments or not. There are certain things. Now, in regard to, to smaller matters, the Spirit leads us in those also. We all know that there are things we do in minor matters that in doing them or carrying them out, we feel a bit uneasy. We have to look interiorly and listen to our conscience. This is what St. Paul is talking about when he says we don't do something in faith. 
That faith speaks about the fact that we recognize that there is a good to be chosen, and in recognizing it, we do it. Or that if something is not good, we don't choose it, we avoid it. That is, in a sense, faith in God. It's faith that there is an objective good, a supreme good, a good which is established outside of ourselves, that we ourselves are not the arbiter of. We don't decide it. Now, there are people who will casually say that in their conscience they thought something was all right. We live in a day and age where it's sort of popular for people to throw around this word conscience or this phrase that, well, it, it was all right according to my conscience. But as the church tells us, she cautions us that saying this is not always the same as that interiority required of the person where we have to look inside ourselves and examine our real intentions for doing something, and we have to place it in the light of whether this is pleasing, whether it's good, right, noble, acceptable, perfect, and the voice of Christ, the Spirit of the Lord, will guarantee this, will guide us. But to go along and never really be an interior kind of person, those people can convince themselves that whatever they simply want to do is according to their conscience because it's what they want to do. But they're not really speaking of conscience or listening to one's conscience in the sense that Scripture means when it talks about listening to one's conscience. So, when St. Paul says that we must never scandalize the weak, he is reminding us that we don't know where people are at on their spiritual journey or their spiritual road. That's why he goes on to say, the one who makes special observance of a particular day may well observe it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats freely eats in honor of the Lord, making his thanksgiving to God, and the one who does not abstains from eating in honor of the Lord. Now, these are non-essential matters. If one person decides to fast every single Wednesday, that person, if that person is doing it to honor and glorify God and to serve God and neighbor, it's a good thing. It can't be judged by us. We don't know what goes on in another person's heart. But if there's some other person who does not fast, the person who fasts can't hold the other to an account as if he or she is somehow failing, because that person might be honoring and serving the Lord in a completely different way. So there is the added matter with regard to non-essentials that we don't know the circumstances, we don't know the intention in that person's heart. But as St. Paul says, let each one be convinced in his or her own mind. A final word with regard to scandal. St. Paul tells us we are never to scandalize the weak or the vulnerable in conscience. And we know that Christ himself scandalized people in his public ministry. The Gospels tell us this. There is a form of scandal that is unavoidable with regard to the hardened of heart, those who are malicious, those who are resistant to the Holy Spirit. When they are scandalized, First of all, it's usually in essential matters. They are offended that there is a truth that they are being called to live up to, to heed, to listen to, and they don't want to because they want to live however they will. 
So those people are scandalized. There were many people scandalized by St. Paul, scandalized by his actions, scandalized by the apostles, but they were scandalized in essential matters. Now there's another kind of scandal whereby the spiritually immature, the little children, not always understanding, can be a bit scandalized by something because it surprises them and they don't understand it. Christ sometimes scandalized, if you will, he confounded, he baffled his own disciples, his own apostles in matters because they didn't yet have the understanding or spiritual maturity to know why he was saying or doing what he was doing. When, for example, the Lord tells Peter that they will pay the temple tax, notice that he is teaching something very important in these moments. Remember when the Lord was indignant, St. Mark uses the word indignant, with his disciples because they were trying to prevent the little children from going to the Lord. And he scolds his own disciples and says, let the little children come to me. In these cases of scandal, if you will, the Lord knows those whose hearts truly do want to understand. They want to learn. And as the Lord himself says, he corrects every son. He chastises those whom he loves. So there are times when we feel sort of the sting of the Lord's teaching, but the Lord does this for us as gift so that we can be brought to greater or deeper understanding. So all of a sudden, if the church starts speaking about something that takes us by surprise, it's like, really? That's the demand of this, of this law, that we have to do this? What happens is that we draw back and we meditate on it and think about it, but the Lord knows our heart is open and we want to embrace it. So the sting of it doesn't make us afraid. The kind of scandal St. Paul is talking about, which violates charity, is the kind that instills fear in those who are weak and vulnerable in their conscience. It instills fear. It makes them draw back from the Lord. They, they, they turn away from the holy things of God because they're confounded. It scatters the little children. That's the kind of scandal which is wrong and which contravenes the law of charity. Thanks for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you are just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be covering The Spirit is Drawing All Nations to Christ. And now, back to Dr. George. In chapter 15, we're moving towards the, the closing remarks of this letter, which are very lengthy. And St. Paul says something very interesting in verse 8. And I want to just spend a few minutes on that. He begins by saying, I tell you that Christ's work was to serve the circumcised. That's the beginning of what he says here. Now, why does he make this point? In fact, we can't help but recall Christ's own words recorded in the gospel when 
he goes out to the regions, close to the regions, uh, the, the pagan territories, proclaiming the gospel. And we remember the one incident, it's recorded in two of the gospels, where he is in the pagan territory, close to Tyre and Sidon, and a Syrophoenician woman comes, a Canaanite woman, a pagan woman, comes calling after him, son of David, take pity on me because my daughter is tormented by a demon. And what is Christ's response? Now this response, we could say, might have scandalized the people who heard it. He said to the woman in reply, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And we're sort of taken aback by that. Now when we're taken aback by the word of God, God is inviting us into a deeper understanding of divine revelation. Several things can be noted here. When Jesus says that he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, on the one hand, he is referring to the order of salvation history. God has a certain order. Certain things are first, certain things follow upon that. And in that order, he reveals, as he did throughout the Old Testament, he reveals that he has a holy mountain a certain chosen mountain, which is the mountain of God, that his house is his own house, that he himself builds his house, that he chooses a people and sets them apart in preparation for Christ, of course, but they are the chosen people, and that from that people the light of the world will come, and that that people will live on God's holy mountain, they will live in the holy city at the top of the mountain, where there will be a temple, a place where God himself dwells. In other words, salvation is not just any or every mountain in the world. Salvation is not to be found in any city of the world, but in God's city, the holy city. There are many temples, but there is one temple of God. So there is something about his choice. Now when he says, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Christ is not saying that he did not come as savior of the whole world. The word Israel itself is very mysterious, is very rich. In fact, biblical commentators will spend a lot of time with this word because its etymology is so rich. We cannot pin it down to one precise thing. It sort of means multiple things, but all pointing to one truth. The word Israel means God rules. And when Christ says that I was sent to the lost sheep of the house where God rules, that's the world, he is sent really to everyone. And remember when Christ says, I come not to save the righteous, but sinners? He's not excluding people. We're all sinners. He has come to save us all. But he uses this language to show how the self-righteous place themselves outside salvation because they refuse to recognize or acknowledge the fact that they are sinners. Now, in the end, ultimately, there is one Israel. The church is the new Israel of God. And there's one church. There's one assembly, one family of God's people. All of mankind are called to be 
part of that. Every human being created is called to live in that kingdom where God rules. Other translations of Israel are God fights. God fights for his people. God wins his people. God is triumphant. We're all lost sheep. Everyone is a lost sheep. Everyone is a sheep destined ultimately to belong to God's house, the house where God rules, the house of Israel. It's interesting that when Christ says this, in a sense it draws out of the woman, the pagan woman, even greater faith because she doesn't stop. She doesn't turn and go away. The Lord knows what he's doing. He reads the woman's heart. It draws her more and more. She begs the Lord more. And in the end, he gives her the miracle she asked for and points out to his disciples that he will not deny someone who has so much faith. This pagan woman recognizes that the life of her daughter, who's tormented, that the peace of her household is to be found in the person of Jesus Christ. She goes to him. And as we're told by St. Matthew when he records this, he uses the phrase come out. He says the woman comes out of that territory. When God gives her that saving miracle, she is on the soil of Israel. Scripture says she came out of the pagan territory. And in repeatedly calling to the Lord, he gives her what she asked for in faith. It's very beautiful. Now, St. Paul says that Christ's work was to serve the circumcised. Why? Because he was fulfilling the truthfulness of God by carrying out the promises made to the fathers. God promised Israel the Messiah. The Messiah would come through Israel. The light of the whole world would be someone who was of the people of Israel. So, in a sense, Christ was sent to the circumcised in order to fulfill the word of God. It had to be this way because everything has to be in its proper order. But St. Paul immediately says, and, verse 9, Christ's work was also for the Gentiles. Now, we remember only a few chapters ago, he talks about the fact that God knew that in sending his son, to the chosen people, that his son would be rejected. The Messiah, the Savior of the world, would be rejected by his own people, the people, the only people who had been prepared to receive him. The ones to whom divine revelation was given are the ones who rejected divine revelation. It was the pagans, the pagans, who ended up sort of opening up their arms to Christ. In doing this, God allows, he allows Israel's resistance so that he can bring into his kingdom all of the Gentiles. This is why in the remainder of the verses of this section, verses 9 through 13, St. Paul repeatedly quotes from the Hebrew scriptures, from the prophets. He is quoting Moses and David and Isaiah. And what he is saying is about the Gentile peoples that I shall praise you among the nations and sing praise to your name. Nations rejoice with his people. 
Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. That all the nations of the world would praise God in his Son, Jesus Christ. That's really the summation of the doxology at the very end of this letter, the last three verses of this letter. But listen to what King David says then about Zion, because Zion is the holy mountain of God. Zion is the church. Jerusalem is the church, as St. Paul says in his letter to the Galatians. Our mother, Jerusalem, is the holy city. She is the mother that is above, and all nations shall be born in her. David said this, all shall be her children. Scripture is speaking of this mystery. Zion, mountain of God, go around Zion, walk through her, David says. Count her bastions, admire her walls, examine her palaces. Take a good, hard, meditative look at her so that you may tell future generations that such is our God. He's talking about the word that will go out to all nations. The church is that fortress, that bulwark, that holy city at the top of that holy mountain. Look at the church, her invincibility, her power, her strength, her formidable presence in the world, her splendor, her complexity, all of these things. The prophet Isaiah says, this is the Lord speaking to his people, it will happen in the final days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of all mountains, and all the peoples will come to it, to the mountain of the Lord. All the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. All the nations, there is one Christ, and all peoples of all nations, doesn't matter if they're Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, pagans, every person who enters eternal life enters through one door, the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. Whether they realize it in this life or not, there's one holy mountain, there's one holy city, there's one heaven, there's one door to salvation. St. Paul is making this point. All are called to it. Many are envious to hear this, but this is God's plan. It's his way. It's his truth, his plan, his salvation. It's not the God of other nations. He says, all peoples will say, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. That's why the Lord is continually saying in Scripture that he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's divine revelation. He is the one true God. They will go up to the house of Jacob so that he may teach us his ways. It is the Lord who teaches us the way, the right way, his son, so that we may walk in his paths. The prophet Isaiah continues, For the law shall issue from Zion. Divine revelation has been entrusted to Zion, to the church of God. And the word of the Lord will issue from Jerusalem. Very beautiful. A few verses later in Isaiah, that day the root of Jesse, standing as a signal for all peoples, will be sought 
out by the nations. They will seek her out and they will marvel when they admire her walls, examine her palaces, count her bastions. The very last chapter of the prophet Isaiah, God says, I am coming to gather every nation and every language. They will come to witness my glory. The distant coasts and islands that have never heard of me and have never seen me. They will proclaim my glory to the nations. And from all the nations, they will bring all your brothers as an offering to the Lord, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem. And some of them I will make into priests and Levites, says the Lord. This is precisely the mystery then that St. Paul is talking about. The mystery is for one and for all. Again, that closing doxology, the last three verses of this letter, is beautiful. It's profound. How he says, the gospel I preach in the proclamation of Jesus Christ in accordance with the mystery which for endless ages was kept secret, but now, as the prophets wrote, is revealed as the eternal God commanded to be made known to all the nations so that they obey in faith to him, the only wise God, give glory through Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and additional materials can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue the New Testament letters. Dr. George will be covering Ephesians chapter 1 through chapter 3, which include the following two topics, hymn to the praise of God's glory, and second, fullness of life is knowledge and vision of God. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church.